0: Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at americanbrainfoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at norellis.com.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, our monthly medical roundtable. Then, we'll speak with the author of The Fun Habit. But first, our January health headlines. The average number of COVID-19 cases nationally has declined by 2% over the past two weeks, according to The New York Times' COVID Tracker. Still more than 550 people have been dying of COVID every day. The XBB Omicron subvariant now accounts for 43% of COVID cases, a huge rise for this viral type. The Department of Health and Human Services has extended the COVID-19 state of emergency that was instituted in January 2020. Secretary Becerra recently announced this. It was the 12th renewal of the emergency and is scheduled to last 90 days. Meanwhile, Florida Governor DeSantis has proposed to permanently prohibit COVID-19 vaccine passports, prohibit schools from instituting COVID-19 vaccine or mask requirements, forbid businesses from requiring masks, and bar employers from hiring or firing based on, quote, mRNA jabs in the Sunshine State. And some good news. According to new data from the American Cancer Society, cancer death rates in the United States have declined by 33% overall since 1991, according to the group's annual report on cancer trends. The only exception is prostate cancer, which showed an increase, especially among black men who had a two to three times higher rate than those in every other racial group. Lastly, 23 states and regions reported high or very high flu activity levels for the week. That's down from 39 states previously who had reported these numbers. Joining us now to add perspective and dive into these headlines are Dr. Dacre Knight. He is a practicing internist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and head of the ehlers Danlow Syndrome Clinic at that institution. Dr. Knight, welcome back. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. It's great to have you. We have Dr. Sunil Joshi. He is a practicing allergist, immunologist, and internist here in Jacksonville, Florida, and the immediate past president of the Duval County Medical Society Foundation. Dr. Joshi, welcome back.
2: Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to have you back. Last but not least, we have Dr. Daniel Correa. He is a practicing neurology, a deputy chief of neurology at the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, and the co-host of the Brain and Life podcast. Dr. Correa, welcome back to our program.
3: I'm so glad to be back, and I'm jealous of all of you down in Florida while I'm up here in the <laughs> New <near> York cold. <laughs> well, you know, uh,
1: that's one of those things that we can have to work to get you back down here in our studios with us. But we're going to get started, and let's uh, begin uh, with COVID and influenza. As I mentioned earlier, COVID infections are down nationally as we end January, but deaths continue to occur The virus is in full force in China, and the XBB subvariant is on the rise. Yet flu cases nationally are trending downward. Dr. Joshi, what are you seeing in your practice? Are we out of the woods for both COVID and
0: flu?
2: Well, you know, our practice basically mirrors what we're seeing nationally, and that is that we have seen less COVID and also less flu in the last few weeks. I mean, in fact, the CDC uh, data suggests in their weekly report that there's a 23% decrease in COVID positivity nationally. Um, and that is certainly what we're seeing here in Florida, at least recently. But in terms of being out of the woods, you know, it's 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 like anything else, you know, the flu is an endemic virus and and COVID is going that way. And so we will have periods of time where things look good and periods of time where it's peaking. Um, these, these hills and valleys hopefully will become less um, compared to how they were a few years ago. Um, and I think that's how we're going to get through this, this, the rest of this pandemic as we move forward. So I I do think we're in a much better spot than we were last year at this time and certainly two years ago at this time. Um, but there will still be some peaks and valleys as we go forward.
1: Dr. Knight, one of the aftermath of all of this is long COVID. Are you seeing high caseloads of long COVID type syndrome or symptoms?
4: Yes, we do still see cases of long COVID. And and speaking of these conditions being endemic, I think we will continue to see that. And it is something that we will also have a bit of a lag with as the cases of COVID fall, which is great. It's wonderful to see, but there will be a lag with the long COVID cases. By, by definition, this is long, right? This is prolonged, so it will continue. And fortunately, though, we do have centers that are managing these conditions, and they're around the country. They're very good. They're multidisciplinary, so they're focused on all the neurologic sequelae, the physical rehabilitation that's required, all of these things that are involved in improving on the condition. The research is so important, too, and that's also uh, been growing. So hopefully, we'll find some associations between what puts patients at risk and how we better manage it, and also maybe identify some other cases where we have seen prolonged symptoms from other effect infections and how we better be able to manage those as well within having this research done.
1: Dr. Correa, there was a report about 550,000 seniors who got the Pfizer bivalent booster vaccine. They were tracked by this vaccine safety data link. And of those 130 had strokes in the three weeks after the shot, according to a CDC official who spoke to CNN unconditioned and amenity because they weren't authorized to share the data. Now none of those 130 people died. And Pfizer stated that they have not observed this and the CDC hasn't even changed its vaccine recommendations.
3: As a neurologist, do we have to worry? So, while this report described an increase in the overall numbers of people in stroke and in the age group of people over 65, um, you know, it's important to consider that this group is already those with higher risk stroke risk factors and higher rates of stroke. Um, Also, many people had lapses in their medical care or medications during the pandemic. And we're kind of still getting into the flow of really optimizing the care that people should have to prevent stroke. So as you mentioned, the numbers out of the 150,000 seniors that were being monitored or in this data, 130 had strokes and none died. So that's a rate less than 0.01%. And that's a rate even lower than one one in every thousand people. Multiple other studies of the safety data have not shown any increased risk of ischemic stroke, and no increased stroke risk has been seen in any other countries. Um, So, the CDC is not recommending any change in the vaccination practices at this time and agrees also that the risk of COVID-19 for older adults continues to outweigh the possible safety issues that may occur with the vaccine. The rates of hospitalization after having COVID and not being unvaccinated are three times higher and the rates of death are 19 times higher. Um, So they're continuing to follow the vaccine and booster safety data. Uh, We have to be aware that there might be many factors that may be affecting these numbers, but I continue to encourage anyone concerned with getting the next booster or the vaccine, they discuss it with their primary care doctors so that they can understand their risk from getting COVID. And I know I want my family members to continue to get the boosters and especially if they have stroke risk factors and other high risk medical conditions.
1: I completely agree. I want my family to get those boosters as well. Let me switch the topic to something that really seems to Uh, Take over a lot of my clinic visits. And that has to do with drug pricing, uh, with the things that uh, all of us prescribe. Uh, Governor DeSantis unveiled new efforts to reduce prescription drug pricing and increase transparency in the state of Florida by going after pharmacy middlemen pharmacy benefit managers will need to disclose all organizations affiliated with them, including any affiliated pharmacies or companies within their corporate umbrella. They have to disclose any complaints or settlement agreements that they've been party to prior to operating in Florida. And it directs the Office of Insurance Regulation to act against these managers which violate state law and hold them accountable as is consistent with all insurers. Dr. Joshi, do you think going after pharmacy middlemen, it's an interesting approach, will have a positive impact on drug pricing?
2: Well, I mean, you know, especially with inflation, anything that's going to reduce drug, drug prices, prescription drug prices would be positive. So let's hope that's what happens. And and I do think that does have the potential for doing that, but it also has the potential for doing some other things. So, you know, right now, the, these pharmacy middlemen, otherwise known as pharmacy benefit managers, are the ones that kind of... Um, develop these deals with insurance com- between insurance companies and drug companies to lower the price of one agent in a particular class. So, for instance, if somebody was on inhaled steroids for their asthma, and there's four different uh, brands of inhaled steroids for asthma, they may prefer one or the other because of some negotiated rate, but that may not be the best one for a particular patient. And so they're forced paying a much higher premium, much higher cost for a drug that uh, just wasn't negotiated as part of the deal, and that's part of what these pharmacy benefit managers do. And I think people get tired of that. That's one thing that may go away if if um, this legislation does indeed uh, become law. Um, and it and also it's these mail order pharmacies. You know, you're getting your drugs from from mail order pharmacies as opposed to your neighborhood pharmacy, and you lose a little bit of that touch with um, the pharmacist, um, and they'll mail you 90 days supply, even if you don't even need 90 days supply, and and you're kind of forced to use those systems, which again is is typically a waste of money, to be honest, and is part of why the prescription drug prices are so high. So so this may allow the community pharmacies to actually have more of a role in um, providing medications to patients, and, which can also be a good thing. So there may be multiple positive impacts here. The, the number one thing would be the price, but also some of these issues related to getting the medication that your uh, physician prescribes for you. I'm um, not having to do 90-day supply and also being able to go to a local
1: pharmacy. But do you see any negative consequences or unintended negative consequences as a result?
2: You know and that's that's the thing anytime you know you try to do something positive there are always the potential for unintended consequences and and you know why are pharmacy benefit managers there in the first place i mean they were basically (laughs) there to take away some of the administrative burden from the health insurance companies in terms of you know uh, uh, understanding what drugs would be less expensive for them how to administer the medications etc and by putting additional burdens or additional regulations on the pharmacy benefit managers, they certainly may go away, um, which will then put more burden on the insurance companies. And guess who's going to pay that? I mean, that, again, is going to be the consumer. So insurance premium rates may go up as a result. So we have to keep an eye on all of those things as well. So what might be a short-term positive thing may end up being a long-term negative thing. Um, but at least in the short term, this does seem like a, a very positive thing.
1: Uh, Dr. Knight, uh, Florida isn't the only state looking at this issue. On the other side of the political spectrum, California Attorney General Rob Bonta sued six major companies that dominate the U.S. insulin market. The 47-page civil complaint alleges that three pharmaceutical companies that control the insulin market, Eli Lilly, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk, are violating California law by unfairly and illegally driving up the cost of the drug. It also targets three distribution middlemen known as these pharmacy benefit managers that we just talked about, specifically CVS Caremark, Express Scripts, and Optum Rx. Dr. Knight, do you think we'll finally see bipartisan support to improve drug pricing at the state level
4: given we have two of the U.S.'s biggest states going at this? I would certainly hope so. So we can, let's just stay optimistic about it. But there are so many layers of complexity to this. I think Dr. Joshi did a fantastic job of outlining some of the issues and the questions that we have. And, you know, bipartisan support would be wonderful. And, and and, you know, there's so many areas that we, that our country really could be better off with bipartisan support. Uh, Drug costs, not one of them, not only one of them, but as a practicing physician i just would hate to think that my patients have to start allocating resources and prioritizing some drugs over others based on what they can afford we generally are not in the practice of prescribing medications that are not necessary right so if there are any medication prescriptions that are required and they cannot afford them then we're just doing a, a, a poor service to the health of our of our country and our patients all 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 over the states so in and in insulin is a is a good a great example. The the costs of that have just gone up. There is I don't think a finer example of altruism in medicine and medical research when we go back to the discovery of, of insulin at University of Toronto and, and and the researchers who had discovered it, Frederick Banting and his group had sold the patent rights to insulin for a dollar to the University of Toronto. Wow. Simply just outlining the the importance of these medications that no one should have control, no one should take ownership and no one should also just profit so much that it's not available to others because the the impact that insulin has had is really is a veritable wonder of the modern medicine. And, so, and that's what many of these drug developments are. So if we can make it more available to our patients across the country, all for the better. To all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do
1: With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. If you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at JServin. On a different aspect of health policy, uh, COVID-19 health waivers were extended for another 90 days, extending the COVID-19 pandemic health emergency. Dr. Joshi, I imagine that this extension will allow us to continue with all the popular programs associated with the health emergency, like telemedicine, Medicaid enrollment, and relaxation of scope of practice issues for nurse practitioners, PAs, and pharmacists. Do you see this extension just continuing through 2023. It has been the 12th renewal of the emergency.
2: Yeah, I mean, they renew it every 90 days. And and I would like to see it continue. And part of that is because I think it, it's kind of a shame, to be honest, that it took a health emergency for us to realize what we can do to increase access to care with simple measures. And I know that some of these measures do cost a lot of money, but but it has made it so that there's less of an excuse for people to seek care. So number one, Medicaid enrollment, um, you know, because of this public health emergency, uh, Medicare, Medicaid plans throughout the country have not uh, been allowed to uh, take people off of their program. Um, if this program ends, you know, we may have 34 million people additional in this country that are uninsured, which is um, gonna be terrible for access to care as we go forward. And of course, telemedicine, which many practices were doing before the pandemic, has become commonplace for for a lot of us. And we've realized now that if I just need to go over labs with a patient, I don't necessarily need to have them drive across town, leave work, pick up their child from school, just to come to my office, go over a set of labs. I can do it as a telehealth uh, visit. I can go over their CT scan with them as a telemedicine visit, and it does allow for better continuity and access to care. So. So these types of things, you know, every ninety days, you know, I'm I'm waiting for them to extend it because I think that these these are ways that are we're keeping our society healthy in general, even outside of the COVID pandemic. And so I do hope that we can find ways to extend some of the benefits, some of the things that we have learned through the COVID pandemic uh, to help access to care and help our patients going forward to make it easier, not just for us, but for hospitals, the staff, nurses, and to keep uh, keep um, the potential for extending their hospital. Um, floors for for um, overcrowding, you know, all of these things have been very positive ways for us to not have to worry about um, the healthcare system in general. So, so I do hope to see it extend. I don't know that it will through twenty twenty three, especially we start getting into an election year, general election year in twenty twenty four. That's where things may change dramatically.
1: The U.S. has declined the cancer rate by 33% overall since 1991. That's a huge positive news uh, in the world of cancer. And lung cancer seems to be the greatest success, but prostate cancer has not declined and even worsened for black men. Dr. Knight, why are black men dying of prostate cancer?
4: There are several reasons, and this is <clears throat> uncomfortable news, but it's something that we do have to address because we are making great strides in many other areas, but there's are still some that are lagging, and and we do need to pay attention to those and and, and improve on them as and it, however we can. So, the issues with uh, prostate cancer in black men, for one, is important, and there are several reasons why, uh, and all of which we should aim to correct, and then, and we'll find different ways of correcting them because they all have their own. Um, uh, sources and, and causes, but number one is there are genetic differences, so we do know that some of the genetic mutations associated with prostate cancer with black men are more aggressive, and it could mean that identification needs to become earlier needs, needs to be expedited and other other issues too also at hand, so they access so there are health disparities on um uh, Not only access insurance coverage, but also clinical trials, for example. So, enrolling uh, blacks in clinical trials that are useful to the research of understanding these, for example, genetic uh, predispositions. So altogether there are there are several reasons why there is almost a, a double um the mortality of uh, prostate cancer in black men compared to white men uh, but when it comes down to it it is really based on having good preventative services so again getting access to care and then using that access accordingly so listening to primary care doctor recommendations getting a screening when it is needed so that could be as early as 40 years old and at least by the age of 50 depending on family history and then uh, yeah and then and then moving forward uh, the research and including blacks uh, with prostate cancer in these clinical trials
1: Dr Joshi uh, why do you think there has been improvements in lung cancer rates
2: well, I mean, there are many reasons for that, but I think smoking cessation has been probably is probably the primary reason for that. You know, back in the sixties and early seventies, forty-two to fifty percent of people in the United States smoked. Now we're less than twenty-five percent of our population that smokes. So, you know, fifty percent reduction in cigarette smoke um will definitely affect lung cancer rates and then certainly lung cancer death. But also we have we're we're better with detecting cancer now. Um people um, chest X-rays and CT scans, and some of these high-resolution CT scans, PET scans, things like that, um, can allow people to detect lung cancer faster, and then uh, and then start treatment sooner. And the treatments now, which you know are being started sooner, are also more effective than they were in you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so this is all great news. And and to see that significant decrease in lung cancer is fantastic. And to see that a lot of that is because of how public health has promoted. The importance of, of of not smoking, not um, and people have taken heed of that, is also very positive news. Um, you know, as we move forward and, and and talk about what public health can do to improve the health of an entire community.
1: What about what about vaping? Do um, uh, do we have to be worried, uh, lung cancer wise, uh, with regards to vaping?
2: And, you know that's something we'll have to see as time goes on obviously you're not getting the carcinogens directly into the lungs but what what you are getting are chemicals and so when this is why we we are concerned about vaping number one it still has nicotine in it so it's still habit forming um, but number two the oils especially these flavored um, oils that the children young adults are using do affect the lungs and can increase asthma rates for sure and so if they're causing an inflammatory reaction in the lungs who knows what that would do long term and that certainly can lead malignant cells developing. And so we have to pay close attention to that. And so this vaping trend could be something that we um, focus a lot of attention on over the next five to 10 years.
1: Let's uh, change the topic a little bit and look to the state of medicine, uh, if you will. Very recently, uh, there were 7,000 nurses at two New York City hospitals at Mount Sinai and Montefiore who ended a three-day strike and returned to work earlier this month. Daniel, uh, Dr. Correa, you work at Montefiore, uh, and I did not know that as uh, when we had you come on for the show. So I have to ask the obvious question. How did things go during the strike? Are, are nurses now happy or is this the really kind of the beginning for the rest of us?
3: Well, you know, I'm sure I can't answer necessarily for the nurses, but, uh, you know, for many of us, it was a challenging time. I know at each department at Montefiore, uh, schedules had to be adapted to make sure essential care was provided to our patients. In neurology, we added doctors to every shift. That's 24 hours a day to work alongside the emergency travel nurses that came during the strike. And we had limited support staff on site. Um, And unfortunately, This did change some people's appointments or non-emergency procedures that that were delayed. Um, Now, anyone who works in healthcare has to recognize, um, like I'm sure we all do here, the essential role and contribution of the nurses uh, and what they provide to the teams and the people we serve. Um. By no means, I, I was not in the room for these negotiations, but what I've learned is that nurses represented by the New York State uh, Nurses Association were in negotiations with New York City hospitals, including Montefiore, to address their concerns about resources, unfilled positions, the numbers of patients cared by for by each nurse and, and pay. Uh, and I'm glad that the New York State Nurses Association and Montefiore Um, came to an agreement so that we could continue our mission to strive for health equity and commitment to the families and communities we serve but it's not specific to New York or New York City. Even before the pandemic, many healthcare workers across the country were feeling the stresses of the job with limited uh, or no increases in pay or time off. For some of these issues, you know, we've not only had a harder time over the last few years, but from my perspective, many of us can relate to how some the nurses some of the nurses may feel and how and the hope that healthcare system leaders, our governments, and healthcare workers can all continue to work together to find ways to address health, safety, and wellness concerns for everyone in our health system, including the patients and the care providers.
1: Dr. Joshi, do you just find because uh, Dr. Kri is right? Uh, there was a Minnesota nursing strike. There's the National Her- Health Services system in Britain have their uh, nurses went on strike. Is this all aftermath of COVID? In your opinion.
2: I mean, I think COVID may have been the final straw, but as Dr. Correa said, this is something that has been brewing for quite some time, you know, and so when hospitals are, or when their budget becomes tight, um, unfortunately, staffing becomes, it's the staff that, that, that pays the price for that, and that's nurses, that's doctors, that's a, a medical assistants, that's all the way up and down the line, it's the staff that pays the price, and the nurses are down there On the front lines and and when with covid that certainly brought that to light so being overworked there were conditions having to have one nurse for four or five beds in the icu which is very atypical in most situations a lot of nurses left uh, the practice of nursing which put more of a burden on the nurses that were there so certainly covid did make it worse made the situation worse and almost made it so they had no choice but to go on strike um, But this was building for, for quite some time, maybe even generations. Um, and also, you know, kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with legislation to help uh, with dr- prescription drug prices. I mean, we have an issue in this country that um, has to do with healthcare workers, from doctors to nurses to PAs to nurse practitioners being burned out for a variety of different reasons. And a lot of it does come back to the administration of medicine from non-medical providers um, putting the additional burden on the
1: healthcare uh, staff. Dr. Knight, do you ever see our physician brethren joining uh, the nursing side of this equation and uh, striking potentially?
4: Well, don't give me any bad ideas. Okay. <laughs> it seems like a vacation enough to come down here to the studio and step out of the hospital for a little while. So. I think, though, that, yeah, it just what Dr. Joshi mentioned, too, about the the, the burnout, all of those things that we are also just discussing today, it's, it's really it's frustrating for physicians who are trying to do what we can to care for our patients the best that we can with limitations and knowing that those limitations really, in some cases, just have no place at all. So I was talking to some of my resident trainees this morning, which were rounding the hospital, about some of these things that we have to just deal with on a a regular basis. And the the burnout has been described as moral injury, I think is a a good way of summing it up in in a sense, is that you know what you need to do, but you're not able to do it, right? And just having to to swallow it almost again again and again and again. So what do we do about that? Well, we are limited as physicians. I mean, we take up so much of our time caring for our patients, you know, going through charting, documenting prior authorizations, all these things that it does uh, tire us out. So, if there are you know groups that can speak for us, I you know I'm not about to go into politics my, myself, but maybe some others will. But the you know, American Medical Association I know is advocating for physicians, and and there are nursing groups that do the same thing too, because this is a big problem, and we need to start finding some some good solutions fast.
1: Let's switch the topic just a little bit to yet another condition, and this has to do with breakthroughs, and specifically, we're talking in an Alzheimer's drug approval. Uh, the U.S. FDA, Food and Drug Administration, has approved a drug called Lecanemab. It's the second ever treatment for Alzheimer's disease that it's intended to tackle the root of the condition and slow cognitive decline that results. Lecanemab, which will be sold under the brand name Leqembi, is the first Alzheimer's treatment of its kind shown to slow cognitive decline in a robust clinical trial and is the second treatment to be approved in under two years. Dr. Correa, tell us a little bit about licanumab and more importantly,
3: is this a huge leap for Alzheimer's? All right, Joe. So, no softballs. <laughs> uh, you know, so I'm not a cognitive disorders uh, specialist. So, I, you know, I've done, you know, the reading, particularly because it, you know, Alzheimer's disease touches all of our families um, and spoken to other experts to learn more about this new and, uh, and, the, uh, and the other new medications. So, you know, the short answer to the question all of our families have This is not a cure and it's not a definitive treatment to prevent alzheimer's it is a treatment directed against the amyloid protein for the treatment of early forms of alzheimer's disease and so in that study the treatment reduced the amount of that protein in imaging tests and slowed the cognitive and the functional decline by what they described as 27 percent over 18 months and that was compared to people getting a placebo treatment But it's important to know that on the treatment, there was still progression of the condition. It didn't stop it. It didn't take it away. Uh, We don't know yet for the people on the treatment and their families what this 27 percent of slowing and decline meant for the quality of time together or their independence. I appreciate that. And I'm going to let that be
1: our last word because we have so many more topics to cover, but not enough time. So I'm going to mm. thank our fantastic uh, trio of guests here in studio, Dr. Daker Knight. He is a practicing internist and director of the Ellers danlos Syndrome Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Sunil Joshi, he's an allergist, immunologist, internist, and the immediate pacifist president of the Duval County Medical Society Foundation, and Dr. Daniel Correa, a practicing neurologist and the deputy chief of neurology at the Montefiore Medical Center uh, at the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, and co-host of the Brain and Life podcast. Gentlemen, you guys, as always, a
3: fountain of knowledge. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Next time on the beach in Florida. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we'll
1: secure the <laughs> chair for you all three. And up next, maybe just having fun is the best prescription for health. Wellness guru Dr. Michael Rucker joins us on his new book that explains how. We'll be right back.
5: We'll be right back.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and this is what's health got to do with it. You know, one of the keys to health and avoiding the healthcare system is being happy. Indeed, a common question that we're often bombarded with in both traditional and social media is, are you happy? It's true that happier people have been shown to be healthier and have a longer life expectancy. But here's the rub. Many of us simply don't know or realize when we are happy because happiness is often perceived in retrospect and not in the current moment. So maybe we're asking ourselves the wrong question. Maybe the question should be, are you having fun? Fun isn't often mentioned in happiness studies or even in wellness. Our next guest has a terrific new book that argues that health and happiness are all about having fun. Dr. Michael Rucker is an organizational psychologist among many talents. He's created innovative solutions for companies such as Sony, Universal Studios, Red Bull, and Rheology. In 2016, he was named a top 50 influencer in digital health. His new book is The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. He joins us now from his home in Summerfield, North Carolina. Dr. Rucker Mike, welcome to our program.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Mike, what led you to write this book? Why now?
5: Yeah, so you touched on it somewhat. I think we've been overprescribed on the pursuit of happiness. So my own journey, I certainly came to that. I'm a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And for folks that don't know what positive psychology is, uh, right after the millennium, so about 2005, 2006, a group of psychologists had got together. You know, This work had been done prior, but essentially as a consortium um, had gotten together and wanted to develop tools um, of psychology that weren't necessarily for uh, treating poor mental health health outcomes, but for tools of betterment. So things that are commonly talked about now, right? gratitude journaling mindfulness things of that nature um and you know put those into commonplace so that people had access to them and i was part of that still am i believe in, in that science um but what i had done over time was really made happiness a goal right and that to some degree i was achieving that um but in 2016 i had a couple of unfortunate events my younger brother passed away quite suddenly oh, and then all- uh, thank you. And then um, after that, uh, these two aren't related, but I had been a lifelong uh, runner slash triathlete, more a runner than a triathlete, um, but uh, had used that activity to essentially mitigate low level anxiety and found out um, that I had likely gotten injured at some point and that my right hip was no longer functional and needed to get a hip replacement in um, my mid 40s and and for folks that don't know you know essentially at that point you're putting car parts that have you know a limited <laughs> lifespan in your body so when you get it that young um you really can't run again you know some people you know in their 50s and 60s will run again because you know the shelf life's about 20 or 30 years but when you get it that young um you know you don't want it, what's called a revision you don't want surgeons staff to, to go back in so you're told to you know swimming and bicycling bicycling is now your activities and But my identity really was as a runner. And so I had, you know, these two things where, you know, in retrospect, the appropriate response was to one, unpack the fact that my identity had been broken into pieces and I needed to put it back together. And also that an appropriate response was not necessarily happiness of my brother's passing, you know, mourning and unpacking that and understanding, you know, my new role as a single uh, sibling and, you know, everything that comes with that. That, that's not necessarily, you know, where you want to try and have good vibes only, right, as it were. But I was, you know, because I was such a, a strong believer in what we now call toxic positivity, right? I was like, you know, I can get through this, you know, like right. this, this too shall pass. And wasn't taking the time needed to um, unpack these things. And um, like so many of us, what happened paradoxically is the more I tried to chase happiness um, it was leading to a pretty direct path to unhappiness, so much slow that I, I think I, you know, touched the gray area of a um, clinical outcome. You know, I was certainly on the path towards depression. And so just to wrap it up, I, what, um, pro, you know, was a bit advantageous at the time is that um, a bunch of different researchers, the one that I, I liked the most, Dr. Iris Mouse, out of California, uh, Berkeley, uh, California, excuse me, University of California, Berkeley, was looking at this phenomena specifically in the Western world, right? In individualistic societies where we really hold all of our wins and losses, um, you know, as internal elements of the self. The folks that had been overly concerned with happiness so that they were ruminating right on the fact that their life isn't where they wanted to be were the ones that were, you know, leading to these really poor mental health hygiene and sometimes you know clinical outcomes like depression and um, high levels of anxiety and so if that was true right which i believed because i realized that i was on that path like okay great so everything that i've learned over the past decades is no longer useful like so you know where does that leave me and and that's what led to um starting to research the book like there had to be another way and so um you know again i i latched on to the, the prior research i had done in workplace wellness which is suggests that autonomy is a key component to how people thrive in the workplace. Yes, I was like, if, that, if that's <clears> true, right? When we have psychological safety and the wherewithal to have some agency and autonomy over our domain, that's not just psychological uh, positive outcomes. Again, pretty direct uh, link to physiological outcomes too. Those same principles must apply outside of life. Um, and so I coupled that with the fact that mindfulness had become, um, you know, there was so much research and and even in, in very recent times, too, to suggest that those types of interventions were beating out pharmacological interventions with regards to good mental hygiene. I kind of paired those together. And what I realized is that not enough of us are actually enjoying the things we do. Even when we have a life that's busy, we're doing it through this lens of martyrdom rather than, you know, realizing that we can add elements, you know, whether that's you know, the people that we're with, the way that we're doing the activity, or sometimes even just the environment in which we're doing it, right? I talk in the book because um, my background is in, you know, fitness interventions. Like, if you don't like the gym, why don't you get out in nature and hike? You're going to get the same sort of outcome, right? If the activity is to get you, um, you know, out of the house and, and burn in some calories, you don't have to grind it out at the gym just because that's what, sure. you know. So Yeah. So, um, so you know, the, the idea... Go ahead, so, Mike, so
1: So, as I kind of understand it, I mean, I, I hear you. So you have these two big things that happen in your life that really makes you reexamine things. But I, I'm just curious, like, I mean, how did you arrive at the issue is more about fun than about happiness? What led to that revelation?
5: Yeah. So there's a, a lot of different reasons that I believe that fun is a better tool, right? One, we know, especially in psychology, we've essentially boiled down happiness to what we call subjective well-being, right? We've turned it into this quantified measure. And if you think about it, that becomes problematic once you create a yardstick for what that ideal is, right? What happens when you reach a 10? Like, you know, the, ultimately at some point when something goes wrong, you're now unhappy, right? And so we know that when the motivation doesn't hit, um, there, that creates this dissonance. And sometimes that um, dissonance can create rumination and that's where things really go awry. But fun is an action orientation, right? It's essentially like, okay, I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing right now. How can I change elements to make it better? Or, you know what? I realize that I have a whole 168 hours of my week. And so, yes, I need to give 45 or 50 away to my vocation. I'm living in the sandwich generation, so I certainly have domestic duties of taking care of kids and um, you know potentially aging parents. But holy cow, in that entire 168 hours, I'm not even enjoying two or three hours of them. And so one thing that illuminated like how problematic this is is when I found this piece of research from Stanford, Harvard, and MIT called the Hedonic Flexibility Principle. And real quick what that is, is it looked at the sample size was humongous, right? 28,000 people. Okay. And it looked at how people were spending their time and folks that weren't enjoying themselves at all, right? So essentially, you know, the folks that are burnt out or really just not engaging in any sort of active leisure, those were the ones that would, you know, plop down on the couch and find, you know, unhealthy forms of escapism. You know things that we call uh, again passive leisure like you know just playing on social media doom scrolling potentially channel surfing or you know just activities that aren't very invigorating and this would become a downward spiral they would show up the next day to work not you know with less energy and then ultimately you know they would be have no energy when they got home and so this just kind of continues on the more exciting thing is the folks that actually have a transition ritual so they're spending the same amount of time and leisure But they're finding things that really do, um, they do find enjoyable, right? Whether that's social connection with friends, right? You know, simply, you know, just grabbing a coffee with a friend or engaging with an activity or taking a dance class or, you know, for it doesn't necessarily have to be high arousal. I talk in the book for my wife, it's reading a good book, you know, time that's reserved for her. You know, for some, it will be self-care if that's, that's important. But the folks that actually do that, again, reclaim some agency and autonomy over their time paradoxically are the ones that are way more productive. They show up the next day with the vigor and vitality to do the hard stuff. And that's where we've gotten so off the rails, right? Like we do, we spend so much of our time through this sense of duty and martyrdom, we don't realize that we're actually producing a lot less than we used to be when we were actually enjoying some of our time. Like and so that's a-, a long-winded way to answer your question that the fact that we're having no fun is actually leading to less productivity clinical outcomes, both physiologically and psychologically. And then especially after the pandemic, the fact we're not having fun with friends, you know, this epidemic of loneliness that's been you know, because of Robert's great book, you know, we're talking about a lot,
1: too. Mike, I, I, I'm i listening and it is uh, truly resonating as I <laughs> as you're kind of describing these uh, very important points. But le- let me get right into uh, a big issue. So many people are reexamining their relationship with work. Uh, and unless you're very lucky, uh, most jobs aren't necessarily fun. Uh, so. I guess my question to you is to our listener out there, how do you reconcile that need for fun? Or how do you make work fun if inherently that work may not be fun?
5: Yeah, and you bring up a good point, right? Like, so I wouldn't say the corpus of the suggestions in the book are rooted in privilege, but they're going to be a certain segment that are, right? To your point, some people might have the flexibility to find a fun job for others as i mentioned in the book my academic practicum was with physicians and when i walked in there and said hey we can build resilience by scaling back you know some clinical hours i was you know essentially laughed at i wasn't chased out we figured out what to do but you know sometimes certain interventions aren't going to be possible right so the the place to start is you know i suggest looking at you, how you're doing your work as an anthropologist are there opportunities to figure out how to just play with some of the components so that you're enjoying them a bit more. And then also protecting those breaks in between that space so that you can have fun in between, you know, the spaces so that when you do go back to work, you do have that vigor and vitality. And again, I show a whole host of studies that suggest that how important it is to break up an eight hour work week, right? Or excuse me, an eight hour work day uh, so that the second half you do have something left to give. And so, you know, there's all different variables to play with, even in a a busy job. And so, those are a couple of things. The other I would suggest is really knowing where those transitions are. So, I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that we don't know that clear um, finish line for when our day is over. And so, one of the most impactful things I've seen, even in the most busy of lives, is, you know, at 8 p.m., as asinine as it is to say that, right? 8 p.m. is going to be when my workday ends. And so I'm not going to answer emails from 8 p.m. till my head hit, it hits the pillow so that I can enjoy like a glass of wine with my partner and watch a show that I really like instead of, again, just sort of being on my phone half time, not really paying attention to what I'm doing and just essentially allowing those last two hours of my day to be an extension of work. So those are three sort of basic things for even the most busy people that you can put into practice. So again, Figuring out, are there any ways to adjust your work so they're more enjoyable to you? Where are the opportunities to reclaim your break so they don't become just an extension of work? And then how can you develop transition rituals so you know that your workday is ended? And that's especially important for folks that work long hours and then people that work in the knowledge economy, where essentially you don't know when a creative project is finished, right?
1: Right. I love those suggestions. So I want to make sure our listener walks away from listening to our conversation uh, with uh, like probably the most actionable item. What's one thing um, briefly that a listener or reader can do to increase fun in their life? What's what's that central piece you would uh, say to that?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So an important piece is to create space first. Right. And the easiest way to do that is is to, as unfun as it sounds, you know, it doesn't take that much time, but, and you can make it fun by approaching it with a sense of curiosity, is really get mindful of how you spend your 168 hours. So it's not gonna be like each week is an exact carbon copy of the previous one, but you'll be really surprised how habituated you've made your week. And so looking for opportunities to find ways to create space so that fun can thrive, right? So that's that's really the biggest first step you know, where are you spending too much time, essentially just passing time, right? Again, you know, that might be watching, you know, shows that you don't care about. Again, any of us can look at our phones, you know, both the iPhone and Android now will tell you how much time you spent on an app. Sometimes that won't be social media per se, right? For me, I realized I was spending way too much time in email and it was essentially my fault, right? I I didn't turn my notifications off and you know, those email apps are devised in the same way other attention economy apps are, right? Like if we aren't mindful of them, they will capture our attention. And so there are ways to figure out where are those transitions where you're like, this is my time, whatever that means. And then you can incorporate fun activities back into that. And so you know, just a little bit of brainstorming, you know, figuring out what it is that you wanna try and be playful with, you know, adding a little bit of variety and novelty. And what you'll find is the first week or two, you know, all of us, even if it's something that's really enjoyable, that change becomes hard, right? The first couple of weeks, you'll be like, eh, I don't know, you know, is this working? Especially for the ones that are connecting to um, something that they had a level of mastery. So I see dance classes and going back to music classes being like, really impactful, but the first couple of weeks are difficult, right? If you really knew how to play the guitar and you're going back for the first week, realizing like, oh, I've got a little bit of catching up to do, that can be difficult. But by week three, when you're like, oh, my gosh, why haven't I done this sooner? Check in with yourself and see how the next day at work or, you know, at home, if, if you have more domestic uh, responsibilities and just see how you show up, see how much better your work is and see how much better you feel. And I promise you, that's all it takes. And then the rest just becomes a really easy sell.
1: I love that. And I'm going to let that be our last word. Uh, Mike, uh, congratulations on just a fantastic book. Uh, I've already uh, put this on my uh, bedstand as a reminder that I need to always incorporate fun in my own life. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming on our program today.
5: Oh my goodness. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much.
1: You betcha. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Rucker. He is an organizational psychologist and the author of a terrific new book called The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella da Silva is our director. Next week's program is our Healthcare of Adjusting Brainwaves show. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358 6362, email us at health at or tweet me at jcervin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 899 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening and stay in touch.
0: Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation. Foundation.org and by The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find
4: cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.